Hey everybody, welcome to episode 25 of Vassals of Kingsgrave's Agatha Christie Reread. My name is Bina007. I'll be your host as we cover Hercule Poirot's Christmas, despite the fact that it's the middle of summer, originally published in 1938. And joining me today is Pat. Hi there. Also known as 2.0 on the Discord. Absolutely. Join us to discuss Agatha Christie and much else on the Vassals of Kingsgrove Discord server. Google VOK podcast to find the link to join. Okay, as usual, folks, we're going to discuss this in a rel- in a spoiler-free manner and talk about the context, um, a little bit about the cast, some of the plotting in a spoiler-free way, um, whether it holds up to the modern reader and adaptations. And then after the end credits music, we're going to get into the solution of the novel. But to whet your appetite, if you have not yet read this novel, this is a proper locked room mystery and the first that Agatha Christie has written. She's done others that are sort of a locked house in terms of there's a certain cast of characters and a certain space. So you pretty much have a, a defined set of people who are suspects. But this is a genuine locked room mystery um, with a real twist at the end. And in her dedication to this novel, Agatha writes, My dear James, you have always been one of the most faithful and kindly of my readers. And I was therefore seriously perturbed when I received from you a word of criticism. You complained that my murders were getting too refined, anemic, in fact. You yearned for a, quote, good violent murder with lots of blood, end quote. A murder where there was no doubt about its being a murder. So this is your special story written for you. I hope it may please your affectionate sister-in-law, Agatha. So this is a lottery mystery with tons of blood, a real gory end for the victim, and to a certain extent, a foreshadowing of then there were none in structure because we have the chapters by day and the point of view of different characters as they assemble in the house to celebrate Christmas where the locked room murder is going to take place. Um, Pat, was this your first time reading this or a rereading? And how did you find it in the relativity of all the other Poirots we've read so far? First time reading it. Um didn't uh, enjoy it as much as uh, others, um, but uh, it, it had its own attractions. I can't talk too much about the ways it appealed to me until the, the, the spoiler section, really, because okay. I, I felt I'd guessed the murderer relatively soon. And I think compared to quite a few, I think um, Christy dropped a lot more clues in this one that I picked up on much earlier. So Yeah, I think it's quite ham-fisted and it's cluing to... And um, we can get into it in the spoilerful section, but I felt this was in in a lot of respects quite ham-fisted. And to me, this is definitely tier two Christie bordering mm. on tier three. I mean, it's for me, it's not as bad as Murder in Mesopotamia, but it's it's kind of mm-hmm. approaching that. It's like a two and a half. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I'll always love a Poirot and I'll always love a Christie, but I feel like the tortured nature of getting to this locked room mystery yeah. forces her to do things that I find a little bit silly and a little bit implausible. So yeah, uh, well, I, I think like the thing is, like she generally writes a good plot. You know, she, her yeah. outlines are generally solid, and I think that's why like the TV series was so successful because they've adapted it. And okay, they might have trimmed a few members of the cast and things like that, but like the bones of a good story are always there. You know, and I, I think you you can't really deny that. That's one of the reasons why she was so popular at the time. You might not be happy with um, the way she's written some stuff and some of the dialogue might have dated and things like that, but the bones of the plot are usually pretty sound. And I, I, I found that with this one. You know, I, again, I, I think I'm with you in that um, it's not as good as a lot of the other stuff, but I think that's probably down to um, 
the quality of the the way she's told the story, part of it being dated, rather than the plot. I mean, I, I thought it, it it was it was okay in that respect. I didn't think it was too bad. Mm. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get into it, and let's maybe start with, as usual, a bit of historical context. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about. Agatha Christie, you know, being in her happier and more productive years, she's in a wonderful second marriage, she's very settled in her life, very successful, but the world, by contrast, is not. This would have been released in the winter of 1938, a year which saw many wonderful innovations. We had Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs released, um, which is pretty... Epic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we also had the first nylon bristle toothbrush, I realised. Oh, my God. I know. Can you imagine it's that old? I, 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 I feel great. I've got uh, I, I, loads of posts to put on the Today I Learned um, section. I know. The, the, the Battles <laughs> of Kingsgrave Discord now. This is great. Exactly. But very sadly, it was also a year where we had Adolf Hitler's Germany force the Anschluss with Austria. Mm-hmm. We have Second Sino-Japanese War. We have the first edition of Superman in Action Comics, number one. Oh, wow. I know. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Because you have all these things I think of as incredibly modern at the same time as all these really heroic things. And maybe the most relevant for this novel, we have the continuation of the Spanish Civil War and in some ways an acceleration of it. Um, And you start to see air power used. Um, So bombing from the air was obviously a major part of the Spanish Civil War. Most of us um, know it through Picasso's Guernica. Alicante mm-hmm. was bombed by fascist rebels, 313 people dead. So these are the sorts of things that would have been appearing in the press, um, mm-hmm. would have formed, I guess, the sort of the background of this novel. But I think it is really interesting. You know, this is this is the time of air power. This is the time of Hitler rising to power. This is a very, in a sense, a very modern year, a year of modernity of new technology, maybe rather ominously. Um, and it is the yeah. year obviously, of the Sudeten crisis where the West did not step up and defend the Sudeten land. Um, and the Munich I, I, agreement was signed, so we had peace in our time. So maybe it's all all right. Yeah, well, I don't think so. <laughs> but, um, you know, with hindsight, we know that wasn't the case. I think... Uh, that would be one of the points I would make about the context of, of, of this story. I, I felt that, and again, we're coming at this with the benefit of hindsight, the Spanish Civil War was given quite light treatment. Mm. You know, the characters who experienced it as part of this story are like, well, it's just war, you know. And I, I, I think that, you know, it's quite an admirable char- character trait that they've got in that they seem to be quite robust individuals, you know. They're not emotionally damaged by all the experiences that they've been through. But I think we know that that wasn't the case, that, that in reality, like with Picasso's Guernica, this was a tremendously traumatic period of time. Like you said, this was one of the first uses of um, air power in in sort of like mass bombing. A lot of civilians, area. right? Yeah. Like weaponizing civilians. It's kind of interesting in the context of the film Oppenheimer as well. And I was just thinking that what would you have been doing in England for Christmas? You know, as you were buying mm. your gifts for Christmas for your family, would you have been worried that your dad or your uncle or your brother or your son was maybe going to be called up to a war? Mm-hmm. Um, would you have been reading daily in the papers? I mean, this novel was published basically five weeks after Kristallnacht in mm-hmm. Germany. So as much as you might have been oblivious to the rise of anti-Semitism and violence in Germany, mm. I'm thinking that by then you probably aren't. I would hope you're not. And so maybe there is something to the popularity of Agatha Christie and the escapism, escapism? Yes. How am I pronouncing yeah. that? This idea that you're in a very safe world, and maybe there's a maybe there's something really comforting in the idea that of a locked room mystery in particular, 
that yeah. the violence is going to be incredibly safely contained yeah. in this one room with this one cast of characters. Mm. And I can have Hercule Poirot come in and solve it and tie everything with a nice bow at the end mm -hmm. when the world is falling apart. Maybe that speaks to the sales. And, you know, the next novel we were just talking about is Murder is Easy, set in a lovely, quaint English village. And mm -hmm. there must have been something incredibly comforting about just escaping into a Christie well, at a I, time of, of, of civil civil and actual war. I mean, I, I, I've got, a, a, I'm curious about something as well, because these books continued to be um, written and published throughout the war. And I, I'm always wondering, like, how did people get hold of them? You know, um, I can understand how in America where, you know, they didn't have to to, to go through the blitz. Hmm. And so the um, things could still happen. You know, people could still publish books. But, you know, I, what was happening in the UK? I mean, how 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 were these books after? Because I would have imagined that this one would have been almost like the last one that would have been published before before um, Britain got dragged into the war. Yeah, well, we'll get into this a little bit when we talk about later books and how um, paper shortages did or didn't impact things. But it definitely was um, part of it later on. But for the moment, we're not in the war. And actually, there's, you know, mass publications, absolutely fine. Um, mm. So, so far, so good in that that respect but we do have some nice we do have some nice quotes from the books on context so if we start with the spanish civil war there's quite a long passage early on about that where there is a character who is spanish a spanish lady who's come over to this english village where the murder is going to take place um and the quote is pilar's politics seem to be rather vague in the village where she came from she explained nobody had paid very much attention to the war it has not been near us, you understand. The mayor, he is, of course, an officer of the government, so he is for the government. And the priest is for General Franco. But most of the people are busy with their vines and the land, and they have not time to go into these questions. So there isn't any fighting around you? And Pilar said that there had not been. But then I drove in a car all across the country, and there was much destruction. And I saw a bomb drop, and it blew up a car. Yes, and another destroyed a house. It was very exciting. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, this is the point I'm making. It's almost a bit too blasé, and I don't think. Mm. Yeah, exactly. But it is it is interesting. That I think there's some deep truth in there, actually, that even in a time of war, it's probably psychologically quite healthy if you can just focus on your own life and just getting through that rather than yeah. focusing on... Coping mechanism, yeah. There were some other things that made me laugh, though, in terms of historical context, because slimming, which I always thought of as a very modern industry, right, the wellness industry and the slimming industry, makes, its, um, makes itself known. So... Mr. George was very red in the face, gobbling his food he was without tasting it. He'd get a stroke one day if he wasn't careful, Mrs. George. Mrs. George wasn't eating, slimming as likely as not. Yes. <laughs> and I and thought, I, oh my God, that's really funny that that, like, the, just the concept of slimming was there, you know. I, I, and just as a side point to come back to what we were doing at the start, um, about why we like this and why we thought it was maybe not as high on our list as some of the others. I, I think it's not got as much humour. And I think mm. um, Christie has got quite a sly sort of social observational eye. Yeah, she's very and, satirical, I, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, I but yeah. it's missing from this. And I think one of the few instances that we get it, we, we get it less than a handful of times in this book, I would say. It was maybe like two or three. And one of them was when the butler Trevelyan 
is going round um, serving dinner, and he is really caustic. And this is one of his passages. You know, yeah, yeah it, the judgment of the servant. He thinks he's superior to the master. Exactly. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, I, and I like I enjoy Christie when she's writing stuff like that, and I, I like to see plenty of it in her books. Mm. You know, and this one didn't have it. You know, it it it, it was much sparser. You know, yeah. And I, I think There's it's also a bit of um, social satire, I think, in the voice of Hercule Poirot. Who I often think is kind of yeah. mediating what Agatha Christie thinks, and it's really funny again because people think she's this sort of twee English village oldie worldie heritage person. Yeah. Um, but Hercule Poirot is really annoyed at the fact that this house is really cold and it's got this wood fire that isn't really working. He says, um, cautiously, he edged his own chair nearer to the blazing logs, though he was of the opinion that the opportunity for roasting the soles of one's feet, like some medieval torture, did not offset the cold draft that swirled around the back of his shoulders. Yeah. Colonel Chonk Johnson, chief constable of Middleshire, might be of the opinion that nothing could beat a wood fire, but Hercule Poirot was of the opinion that central heating could and did every time. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and that's what we've. Um, you, you sort of like you're talking about the um, the age of modernity. You know, yeah. Here we are. Um, Hercule Poirot is very attached to his radiators. So. Yeah, exactly, and I love the idea that people might think of Hercule Poirot as fuddy duddy and old fashioned, and you know, but actually, he is a man who just likes. Convenience and luxury, and I think that's very much Agatha yeah. Christie. And I'm very much of the same same attitude. And I, I can just imagine Hercule Poirot using a modern nylon toothbrush as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Efficiency, yeah. my dear Hastings. In terms of the Christie verse, the character of Colonel Johnson of Middleshire um, appeared in Three Act Tragedy. Bit of a mm -hmm. deep cut there for you to remember from 1935. But they do mention um, that case in Part Three of this novel. And and it is a little bit meta actually. They I think Agatha Christie does have a little bit of fun, right? There's a point where he says, "Do you mean to tell me, Superintendent, that this is one of those damn cases you get in a detective story, whereas a man in where, where a man is killed in a locked room by some apparently supernatural agency?" So, I think Agatha Christie's playing with the idea that she's trying out this format of lock, locked room mystery, and she kind of she's yeah. winking at us and saying, "I know this is a little bit silly and contrived, but let's see. You know, I'm cool at this, so let's see how good I am at creating this puzzle." <laughs> Mm -hmm. Maybe into a bit of an outline of plot. So basically, the the family or a family are gathering um, in a country house for Christmas. The family is is run by a guy called Simeon Lee, who is a, a very old man. He's a millionaire, and he's basically a total shit. And it's really funny that he's almost like the male equivalent of the evil, sadistic mother in mm. Appointment with Death. Yeah, so, he controls people through money. Christie seems to be a lot um, lighter on Simeon Lee. I mean, you, you're right. It, they're almost identical in that they're controlling people through money. But um, Simeon Lee seems to be portrayed more as a, a mischievous character who's not really that bad. He's just got a bit of devilment in him. Whereas um, Mrs. Boynton comes across as somebody who's malevolent. You know, she Ooh, is. Oh, I don't know. I think they both come across as really horrid. I think Simeon Lee comes across as an absolute nightmare. And well, that she's really harsh on him and his personal life and how he treated his wives. And I, I, I do not well, think she lets him off the hook. I think we've we've definitely read that very differently. There's a quote from one of his daughters, and, and I know that we're going to get on to what his uh, daughters-in-law think of him. But um, Lydia Lee describes him as diabolically impish. And it, it's almost like he's being treated as almost like um, a naughty little boy. No, by the way, I don't people get that are talking about him. You, I don't you, get that at all. Across. No, I didn't. <laughs> all right. But that's the 
draw of Agatha Christie, right? We get different things from it. Well, I, I no, really, yeah. I really, I did, I did get the impression though, and we've had this before, haven't we? Where there's one or two books that follow each other, where you can almost feel that she had a good idea and she was sort of working it out differently and yeah. writing it in a slightly different way. Yeah. And I really feel this pairs very well with appointment. Um, yeah. Appointment yeah. with death. Because, I, I so, yeah. you know, it is a family that's controlled financially. I mean, actually, almost I feel in appointment with death, it's more controlled psychologically. Because here, yeah. none of the kids are really psychologically controlled with him by him. They all hate him. It's just well, he has a, he has a, 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 a um, he has a looser degree of control over the, yeah. the, the children than um, Mrs. Boynton has over her children, and I think there's a psychological element of that. But um, I, I, I don't want to be defending Simeon Lee because he, he he's not a nice person. But I mean, they they do talk about him being um, openly generous for people who are in need and things like that. Mm. And um, anyway, it, it just it came across to me as he was more a, a, a bored old man having a little bit of sport with his children um, and trying to get them to stick up for themselves rather than somebody who, like, I, I said this when we were talking about Mrs. Boynton when we did the appointment of death one. I get the feeling that she's almost portrayed as some sort of, um, you know, the essence of evil. She's some uh, horrific monster. And I think that degree of psychological control she has over her family comes across like that. Whereas, you know, I don't think Simeon Lee, maybe he's just not as clever, you know. No, and I think there is something where I think when you read all of Agatha Christie's novels as a whole, and we're going to get there with spades in and then there were none, that mm. she has a respect for psychological evil and psychological manipulation in a way that she doesn't for just sort of mere financial or logistical control mm. and i think so i think you're right i think they are different categories of of evil victim of murder so dear listener <laughs> if you haven't read this basically it should come as no surprise that the family are going to gather around their dear old dad simeon lee for christmas and he is going to be the victim who has found brutally murdered um, a very immobile old man locked in his room they have to break the door to get in there's no apparent way into the room the window is open, but just an inch, but with a, a safety nail for children so that you can't open it more. And there's just no apparent way someone could get in. So how was this murder committed? This very brutal, gory, yeah. bloody, I, disgusting death. They do a make, a, they, they make a big deal <laughs> of that security screw as well on the yeah. window. You know, it, it, it's old, but quite firm. You know, the window hasn't been, you know, that that that, that window hasn't been opened beyond that security screw for years. Yeah, so, so it, it's a really good setup. And the challenge and the joy for the Christie reader is to figure out, obviously someone did get in the room to murder this man in a very gory mm. way. Why? Um, it, it it feels like it should be a member of the extended family and the people who were living there. Hercule yeah. Poirot is a house guest. Is he going to detect the murderer? Um, let's do some character stuff. So... Akil Poro obviously remains an absolute badass. He has a conversation with the superintendent who's investigating the murder, who also has a moustache. And yes. he's looking at it with, with great attention. He says, it is true that your moustache is superb. Tell me, do you use for it a special pomade? Pomade? Good Lord, no. What do you use? Use? Nothing at all. It just grows. <laughs> Poirot sighed. Ah, oh, you are favoured by nature. He caressed his own luxuriant black moustaches then sighed. However expensive the preparation to restore the natural colour does somewhat impoverish the quality of the hair. So we get the, yeah. once again an admission that he is dyeing his tash and it's it's mm. destroying the quality of it. So and, uh, and, and I was I was quite pleased that you fished that quote out because again this is coming back to this being um, a, a, a less 
humorous novel. I mean, I, I went through this. I was kind of scour it for the Poirot being Poirot bit for Xander, and I couldn't come across one. And I yeah. think this, this is There's it. There's very little. That's pretty much it, right? That is yeah. that is the only Xander moment. <laughs> yeah, this, this is it. You, 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 this, this is all we've got from the, the, yeah. the whole book. So, I mean, I'm disappointed in that respect. But, you know, this bit is hilarious. You know, you, you, you get the feeling Poirot, you can almost see yourself, Poirot's sitting there in the room, eyeing the guy's moustache jealously. He's there going, oh, you know, how did he get it to be like that? Exactly. So, so joining Poirot on the detective side of the list, we've got Colonel Johnson, who we mentioned before, the chief mm. constable of Middleshire. And we also have the guy who's really going to be more on the scene in the house, really doing the investigating. In fact, he was in the house just before the murder, collecting a charitable donation before Christmas, and that is Superintendent Sugden, he mm-hmm. of the beautiful moustaches, who's the investigating police officer. We then move to the people who live in the house. So we've got Simeon Lee, as we said, the old millionaire. Really interesting, as you say, as a character. He's not the same level as Mrs. Boynton. I think he is more of a caricature, and I think we can argue over degrees of evil, but he's he's not a nice guy. No, but so, there is uh, control. So this is a quote yeah. from Lydia, who you mentioned before. He's got a son called Alfred and the wife Lydia, which is very similar to um, Nadine Boynton asking or wanting her husband to leave and, and being frustrated that the husband won't leave. So, again, Mm. it's very much a sort of an echo or another reworking of appointment with death. Um, As far as money goes, your father is very generous, I admit, said Lydia. But in return, he expects us to behave like slaves. That's the word I used. You are his slave, Alfred. If we Mm. have planned to go away and father suddenly wishes us not to go, you cancel your arrangements and remain without a murmur. If the whim takes him to send us away, we go. We have no lives of our own, no independence. And I kind of feel that could absolutely just be Nadine Boynton talking yeah. about Mrs. Boynton. Um, so he does have, he exercises control for sure, maybe not yeah. as easily, but it is well, there. And, and, and there is a bit, he, 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 he exercises over Alfred because um, when um, his, his sons grow up, he has plans for them all. Mm. And one of the sons, Harry, decides to go off and do his own thing. And as a result, that changes Simeon's plans for his his sons. And Alfred, who was quite looking forward to joining the army, now has to come into the family business. You know, and he just does it because, you know, that's expected of him. And you do get the feeling that, um, you know, Simeon Lee has a degree of control over Alfred Lee that uh, Nadine, uh, Mrs. Boynton had over her her children yeah and therefore over Lydia Lee so there's so let's go through the sons there's Alfred as he said who had to give up the army and run the family business we've got Mm. a second son called George Lee who's an MP a member of parliament he's a politician he's Mm. corpulent he's greedy he needs a lot more money despite his very generous allowance he's married to a wife called Magdalene who's 20 years younger than him and Mm. he just basically needs to touch up his dad for more money effectively so he's got motive for murder just as they all do there's another son called david lee who was an artist um he's got he's very nervous and anxious he's got shaking hands yeah um, and he's, he's traumatized from his childhood because yeah, very uh, anxious and yeah. they, they, they make a, a point of the fact that like simeon was um not a good husband you know and that um david was lent on a lot by his mother um, and a lot of her anxiety about the relationship, you know, has transferred through to him and he's carried it forward, you know, and so much so that he, he sort of like left the family home as soon as he got the chance, didn't he? He made his own life away from it. Yeah, so. but is very, very loyal to the the, the mother called Hilda. Mm. Um, quote, she was so sweet, Hilda, and so patient, lying there, often in pain, but bearing it, enduring everything. And when I think of my father, his face darkened, bringing all that misery into her life, humiliating her, 
boasting of his love affairs, constantly unfaithful to her and never troubling to conceal it. Hmm. So he's very loyal to the mum and we, we are taken to understand throughout the book that Simeon Lee was a serial cheat. He didn't bother to cover it up. He had lots of um, illegitimate children and that he, he still um, fancies himself a ladies' man. I mean, he can barely walk independently, but he's still creeping yeah. on his daughter-in-laws and commenting on their appearance and being really, really inappropriate. You were saying this in one of the previous casts, and I, I think it holds true. I, I think, um, again, the, 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 the wives are more interesting. And Poirot actually makes this point. He says, Poirot says about them, the wives of these Lees had married were a, an interesting study. And there's the bit later on in the book where he's going through the characters of all of the individuals and all of the wives have all got, you know, interesting character traits. And, and I did feel that the um, the men were a, a bit, you know, almost one-dimensionally drawn. You know, you've got Alfred, the dutiful son, you know, and he doesn't really do much more than be dutiful. Even George, who you've talked about as the MP who n- needs more money, he's just really a bit tight. And it's his wife, Magdalene, who, who, who who's really pushing him for money. Um, and then um, David, who's just a, a bit traumatised. But again, you've got his... His, his wife next to him who, who who's carrying him through a lot of the problems he's got and she's the one who's trying to establish it with the family and, and i just uh, i found that the interviews that poirot's having with them after the murder the, the men were just much more matter of fact whereas the women had had different gears and levels to them i mean the interview with magdalene i thought was like really instructive because again this contrast with appointment with death in appointment with death all the family started covering up for each other because they didn't know who'd done it and they were worried that one of them would get dobbed in whereas in this one they all lie by omission they're all like they, they Poirot interviews them and Magdalene straight away is like well um George, uh, George didn't really have a reason but David had this reason and uh, Alfred had this reason and Harry had this reason you know and then she just neglects to mention the fact that you know um Simeon had had a go at them you know and that- yeah but I mean although I mean I, I think that's all a bit weak in a way that's why I don't really like a lot because the, the reason is they all want the money right I mean it's not it's not yeah. complicated but you're right, the women are interesting. And even even Simeon comments on it. I think he, he at one point says, Hilderly, she has force. Like he almost buys mm. his own kids and, and admires their wives, whether they're because they're beautiful or because they're bold. I mean, he likes people. We'll get to Pilar in a bit. Let's just quickly do Harry Lee, the final son, the, the black sheep, the prodigal. He's the one that sort of went off, was wild, got into debt, and was always cabling back for money, travel the world. And he's now turned up back for for Christmas, presumably also after money as well, which is putting the dutiful son's noises out of noses out of joint because, you know, they're the ones who've always done the right thing and now this one's coming back and is, is apparently the favourite. But yeah. I always think when I read of these dissipated young men who are quite charming, quite good looking, but feckless, I always think of Agatha Christie's um, handsome elder brother mm. who went away to Africa and got into all sorts of trouble and died fairly young and you know, she was forced to write to save her family effectively because this one was just so pathetic. But she often has a soft spot for these prodigal sons. And I think that really, it's still coming through in 1938. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, she does write, yeah, does write um, these these adventurous men you know mm. they might be a bit dim but they, they you know they've usually got something to soften them you know yeah. so, i suppose she married one in a way but um, <laughs> even in, in the happiness of her second marriage you can still think back on them fondly in a way 
Yeah. Um, and, and just as we leave the, uh, the the family members who I guess are all the suspects, um, it's worth pointing out a, a key character trait of that family. We learn that Simeon League um, basically started off in business in diamonds in Africa, diamond mines. Mm-hmm. And he says of himself, I waited once 15 years to get even with a man who'd done me an injury. That's another characteristic of the Lees. They don't forget. They'll avenge a wrong if they have to wait years to do it. A man swindled me and I waited 15 years till I saw my chance and then I struck. I ruined him, cleaned him right out. So not only does the entire family have a motive to kill him for the money and mm. to get out from under his control, presumably there are people out in the world who oh, have been has, yeah. business by this man yeah. because he has not conducted himself well. He, so everyone's basically a suspect. Um, and then I guess there's sort of um, a couple of other characters we should go through. There's Pilar Estravados, this mysterious Spanish lady who mm-hmm. claims to be Simeon's uh, granddaughter. And she's come up from Spain, given the Civil War, and he seems incredibly taken with her. There's also Stephen Farr, who is the son of Simeon's former business partner. Um, he's actually our first uh, point of view, coming back to yeah. England, back from South Africa, apparently hates England. He's 40 years old, and he's going to go and look up. Um, his dad's old business partner um, and he kind of fancies Pilar, meets her on the train and they're going to the same place. So you've got this weird house where you've got the family, you've got this superintendent who's there just before the murder, you've got Poirot and then you've got this very handsome or pretty Spanish lady and a 40-year-old fairly handsome guy also there as well as all the old sort of butlers and footmen who are silently and secretly judging as well. So that's the the cast of characters in the house. Um, did any of them yeah. stand out to you? I mean, you said already that you thought the women were far more interesting than the men. Anything else you want to say about the characters? Well, um, I, 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 um, to start with, if we go back to when Stephen Farr and Pilar first meet on the train, I thought that was quite um, an interesting passage because we're, we're seeing it from their point of view and they are they, they don't like England. They find mm-hmm. it dark and dreary and they say everybody is like quite glum. There's no, nobody there. You know, everybody's uptight. You know, these are caricatures of English people, you know, stiff up a lip, not very friendly. And I almost thought there was an element because they were describing the the sort of the countryside being dreary and London being crowded and dirty. And there was like I was thinking this pathetic fallacy all the way through this. Christie is telling us that there's something wrong here, Mm. you know, by the way that these characters who have come in from outside of England, you know, are perceiving it. They don't like it, you know. Mm. People aren't being nice to each other. It's all, it, it's all, it made me think of Hamlet. I'm thinking like there's something rotten in the state of Denmark here because she is very negative about the whole thing. And the only time that she's um, ever positive um, is when Stephen Farr's talking about South Africa. You know, yeah. they're going, oh, this is a bright, sunny country, a land of opportunity. There's loads going on. And I, I just I, I was just wondering, it, was this a reflection of what Christie was thinking herself? Is she thinking, you know, um, England is quite tired and you know i thought exactly the same pat because i thought gosh this is a woman who had a pretty crap marriage in suburban surrey and just it was not a happy time for her she escaped into this amazing second marriage where she was traveling through the middle east with her archaeologist husband and Mm. produced these amazing books in luxury travel in the middle east all these beautiful sunny places really fascinating places and then presumably because of the war and because of things becoming more hostile Hmm. probably did have to come home and spend and be more constrained in where she was traveling you know this was not a safe place 
to travel in the world anymore and probably did feel a little bit like oh my god I'm back in this country and it's so gloomy and the weather's so crap and you know it was I was trying to think is she trying to subvert a Christmas story because Christmas stories always have to have you know happy lovely snow and the fuck and the yeah. you know chestnuts roasting on I mean, an open fire she, she, what does she's she do definitely, this story yeah, she yeah, moans she, about the weather and she says an open chestnuts roasting an yeah, open fire give me central heating and radiator any day of the week yeah and she's definitely <laughs> subverted it because she's had the happy family christmas that simeon lee keeps banging on about and and the head of the family gets yeah then you know so yes I, she's definitely done that but uh, i mean for me like i was thinking about in two ways i was thinking firstly um this is obviously a reflection of christie's feeling but i also thought like this is heavily foreshadowing that you know everything is not going well in this country at the moment and and you know we're going to get a murder you know it, it's a bit a bit blunt but you know there it is so yeah. anyway so that's why i always find it funny when people think of agatha christie is writing these sort of twee english village life heritage things i'm like agatha christie hated twee english village life she whenever she could she traveled to somewhere far more interesting and sunny yeah. and in she always where possible talks about efficiency and modernity and isn't it lovely to have wall-to-wall carpeting wall-to-wall carpeting and uh, central heating so she really was not an old twee heritage person at all she was very cutting edge yeah uh, <laughs> anyway let's oh sorry the, uh, uh, yeah the, the other thing then the other point i wanted to make was um i, I thought that um pilar and magdalene that lee um they bore comparisons because i got the idea that they were relatively close in age um mm. and they're both young women who are trying to make their way in the world so pilar has come over from spain because her parents are dead and mm. she's um you know um, simeon lee's brought his granddaughter back to england to look after her mm. um and Magdalene, you get the feeling um, she's hooked up with George, who is considerably older than her, you know, um, and he, you're very much thinking of Magdalene almost as a trophy bride. And she's got because um, she's very beautiful, but she also has debts. We're, we're told straight away that she has like a stack of bills that she tries to organize and then gives up because there's just too many of them, you know, and. Yeah. Um, there's that quote that um, Pilar says, the world is harder on women, you know, and, yeah. and, and again, this is all coming through. And I, I, um, I thought that, like, again, if you compare them, like um, Pilar is very direct. She's very plain speaking. She tells, you know, people straight up what she's thinking. And she's quite honest with that. She, she, she She's unapologetic. Whereas Magdalene, I, I, I quite enjoyed her as a character because she's, she's interesting. She's quite... Um, artful you know very clever with her use of language and you know guarded in in what she says and how she comes across and you're almost trying to second guess you know you're you're, you're trying to read the subtext of whatever it is magdalene's saying um so you know i i thought it was interesting because i could see pilar was trying to protect project that she was a strong person whereas magdalene was almost playing on the idea of being uh, a weaker woman you know she's trying to leverage it to her advantage and then the other I thing think, I, think, I think from the sound of it is you you enjoyed reading this a lot more than I did because I genuinely didn't connect with any of these characters. Yeah. And well, apart I, from I, I Poirot, say, and even yeah. Poirot wasn't as Poirot-ish as normal. So it was kind of I, like. I wouldn't <laughs> say, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I connected with them. But I, I, yeah, I, I think there's probably a bit where, um, you know, you, you're probably enjoying finding out more about the Boyntons, whereas these people are much plainer studies. You know, yeah, no, I didn't enjoy. Yeah, I didn't death. enjoy the setting, all the characters, yeah. and in the end, I didn't enjoy the plot, which is why I don't like it as a book. Okay, so let's let's then maybe move into what has or hasn't held up well by modern standards or to a first-time reader. Um, I'm pleased mm. to say this is a book that does not contain anti-Semitism, but it does obviously contain huge amounts of anti-foreigner, 
anti-Spanish in particular sentiment, which focuses very heavily on Pilar. We don't actually get the D word, the pejorative for Spanish people that we got in a previous book, but we do get lots of sort of exoticism and whatever Orientalism is for people from Southern Europe. It's really, it's pretty, pretty hard to read, actually. So the first passage, which I think is really horrible, is the sad pride at proud. And it, what makes it worse is I think Agatha Christie's trying to be flattering. Yeah. And she says, quote, the sad, proud eyes of the South. It was all wrong that this girl should be sitting in this train among these dull, drab looking people. Mm-hmm. All wrong that she should be going into the dreary Midlands of England. She should have been on a balcony, a rose between her lips, a piece of black lace draping her proud head. And there should have been dust and heat and the smell of blood, the smell of the bull ring in the air. She should be somewhere splendid, not squeezed into the corner of a third class carriage. So it's kind of like she's trying to say this person is special and kind of really interesting, but it's doing it in such a kind of completely, you know, exoticized way. It's just really great. Like you wouldn't write like that now. You wouldn't be talking about the smell of the bull ring. I mean, I, I don't doubt that that was probably, um, as you said, Agatha's trying to write as romantically evocative uh, a, a scene as she can, you know. But um, did you feel that that you, you, could you almost um, forgive Agatha because what she's trying to do is that's the way Stephen Farr is seeing the situation. And that's a description of, of a, a man at that time looking at um, Pilar rather than what um the narrator is genuinely thinking oh, I, think, I think I think I am one who says you've got to distinguish between when Agatha thinks something and when she's trying to tell us something about a character mm. but I do think this is Agatha she does it so often with with Spanish people and I think mm. and I think it is like it is ignorance because she is trying to be flattering in almost all the cases but I think it is it's pretty I think this case in particular is Agatha being Agatha through mm. Stephen Farr. I think later she's trying to tell us about characters and show certain characters to be small-minded. So a good example is I think when she's trying to show the small-mindedness of Magdalene, she says, um, Magdalene says, I can't help feeling that the, the manner of my father-in-law's death was somehow significant. It was so very un-English. Mm. And Cora says to her, oh, the Spanish touch, you think? And Magdalene says, well, they are cruel, aren't they? All those bullfights and things. Yeah. Um, well, so obviously, I, I Magdalene's trying to, yeah. fin- obviously Magdalene's trying to finger Pilar and is exactly. using her ethnicity to say the fact that the death was so bloody means yeah. it was Spaniard. Does that mean that that's really how Magdalene feels about Spanish people or she's just trying to, you know, use the evidence to point in a direction? But I think what Agatha is saying is there is something kind of quite small minded that that's the thing that she goes to. Um, So to me, that's a much more layered bit of racism than the first thing, which I think is much more straightforward. Um, Yeah. Well, I'm going to come in 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 the defense here because I did feel that um, although all the language points that you're you're making are valid, I did think that Agatha, um, you know, with Pilar, she's representing a refugee. And I did think she came across as... um, is getting that quite accurately like i I, i'm somebody who as a child was moved around like my my dad's in construction and he traveled all over the uk um to follow where the work was so like um there's a bit where pilar starts stressing her english heritage Mm. you know even though she's disappointed in the country and i I just felt like i'm going back to my childhood that whenever you're somewhere new you're always trying to stress your similarities to try and fit in, you know, to mm. try. And and that's all Agatha captured that, you know, they're, like Pilar is tremendously proud of where she comes from. And she's always talking about it. 
But there are times where she's like very, or when she's on the defensive, she's always stressing the fact that her mum was English. You know. Well, let's, let's come back to that in the spoiler fill section because I think there's there's interesting stuff we can say about that. But I need to get into the plot. But I think you are right, and I think you are fair, and I think that it's something I always try and stress with Agatha Christie, right? That there are layers to how we should read the racism. That sometimes it's not as straightforward as saying this is Agatha Christie be, being, you know, offensive. This is. She's making portraying offensive people. Yeah, 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 exactly. And she does it. I mean, I think that the, the best example of of the latter, which is her knowing like deliberately trying to make someone else out to be small minded, is when she says, um, my poor Lydia says, My poor Alfred, he's so British. He doesn't really like lean money going to a Spanish subject. And mm. so we're meant to read in that small mindedness something quite narrow and pathetic about alfred yeah rather than agatha's own attitude right so i mean i think like you say there are there are layers and there's nuances um in what's going on there there is one adaptation of this story um in the itv david suchet agatha christie's poirot that was released in 1994 it's pretty faithful to the novel although some of the characters have been cut out and sort of made more concise um it is I think a very ordinary, ordinary adaptation. I found it really quite boring, actually. And I think it comes down to what you said about there not being much humour in the book and it just being very logistical and, and technical. And how did we do this lock room? And it just all feels a bit. Yeah, and I watched this Poirot ad- adaptation in, in my usual manner with these when I'm preparing for it. I sort of like flicked through it, and mm. uh, th- th- they made something of the central heating, you know. I, and I. Yeah. I, I <laughs> you almost feel like they've had to be creative. They're like, let's try and introduce a bit of humour into this because this is quite a, a dry, compared compared to some of the other ones, this is quite a dry book. So Yeah, um, we've got to try and zhuzh it up in some way. Yeah. Um. So as we come to the end of this sort of, you know, spoiler-free part of the conversation, what's the recommendation? If, if people haven't read it yet and are listening, do, do we recommend they read this book? Because I'm not entirely sure I would recommend they read it, but do you think it's better than I'm maybe giving it credit for no i i think you're probably being fair i think that like this might be something that we might want to sit down and do at a later stage where we sort of like we rank these but i mm. think by the very fact that this is tier two christy i would say like it, unless you're an agatha christy fan i wouldn't i wouldn't bother i think you need yeah. to read tier ones first so you've got to do like um murder on the orient express you've got to do death on the nile you've got to do uh, even and mystery then there were none. Yeah. and then the and then there were none. I was thinking more of the Poirots, but like this isn't. Um, I, I I think this is more for people who are more interested in trying to read more Poirots, you know. And I would imagine that like I I haven't read anywhere near as many Christies as you have. Um, and I would place in this in the sort of the bottom half of the ones that I've read, and I would yeah, recommend definitely. read the top half. So definitely okay. Well, listener, there you go. You, there you have it. Unless you you want a deep cut, maybe one to avoid. Um, yeah, I would uh, say, however, listener, if you're if you want to listen to a really good podcast series about Agatha Christie, really check out all about Agatha. Um, it's done by two American podcasters, sadly one of whom's passed away, but it's still going on. And they read them all in order, including all the the short stories, and they did rank them. They had quite an interesting ranking system around characters and plot mechanics and, again, oh, deducting points for being regressive or progressive. If, if you haven't listened, Pat, it's really phenomenal. Yeah. I'll, I'll all about Agatha. And yeah, I'll look into it. Yeah, yeah they, do, I mean, they do a lot of research. They get great people on. So um, that is really interesting because they do have a ranking system. And maybe we should rank them at the end because we may or may not disagree with them. I think 
for it sounds like for both of us, Blue Train's going to be higher up the rankings than for most. Um, yeah, but I'd really well, recommend that. I think I think like the only other thing I would say about this is I think it is quite uh, a good period piece. So if, if you're um, interested in finding out more about this sort of like pre-war era, pre-World War Two era, mm. this, this, this does um, portray a, and you know the English country house. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's Downton Abbey because we're not talking about the upper class. Brand, but I would say, yeah, yeah. yeah the, these are upper middle class people. They're nouveau riche. There's a lot of wealth around this. Um, and there's little details, you know, like when Trevelyan's going around the dinner table and he's commenting about how the footman's messed up with the ordering of um, serving the wine and he's saying, do you want hock or claret? You know, and things like that. So it's got like little touches that I think are interesting um, from a historical point of view. But mm. like that would be the only other reason. If you were a Mad Christie fan or if you were interested in finding out more about the period. But apart from that, no, I think uh, it's uh, you can pass on this one. Oh, well, that's sad to say, but I think that's very fair. So, dear listener, if you haven't read it, then maybe go away and read it. If you really want to get into your Christie, but otherwise give it give it a miss. And stay tuned after the end credits music if you want to be spoiled. Um, if not, we'll see you next time. Okay, so now let's get into the spoiler of how the Locktrum mystery was done. The key facts or the key clues are that the Lee family always holds on to a grudge and gets their revenge after years and years. And secondly, that Simeon Lee had many, many illegitimate children who look similar. And thirdly, Hercule Poirot's obsession about detective, oh, sorry, Superintendent Sugden's moustache. So Poirot basically figures out that Superintendent Sugden is one of Simeon Lee's illegitimate children. Um, and that he had come to the house before the murder, actually on a pretext, had murdered Simeon Lee, set up a sort of contraption that was going to collapse and alert the house guests to the murder, and that all the blood was stored in a balloon that was burst by him pulling a string that went through the little crack in the window past that safety screw and outside. So that's how the Locturum mystery was treated. We also discover that Pilar isn't who she said she is. She's passing herself off to get that inheritance. And also that Stephen Farr isn't who he said he is either. So there's a few sort of side mysteries that have to be cleared up, which is why I think Pilar sometimes is emphasizing how English her mother is, because she's trying to fit like, you know, uh, establish yeah, herself and playing a part. But it is, it is quite a technical and quite interesting little wheeze of how the murder's pulled off. It, it does rest on the idea that in a normal village shop in England, you can buy a, a fake joke moustache and you can buy a fake joke. Uh, what was it called? The, ki the killed pig, the dying pig balloon that yeah, emits a horrific, <laughs> horrific scream as the air comes out of it, which yeah. maybe would have been more familiar to readers at the time. And we had little joke pranky toys like that when I was a kid. Whoopi cushions. Whoopi cushions was our. I mean, we were obviously much more infantile in my day, but I do find Let's the whole contraption. Those. I do find the whole piling up all the furniture and making the big crash a little bit silly. I think yeah. if you were a vengeful son-in-law and you what, sorry, illegitimate son, and you wanted to kill your father in cold blood, there's probably easier ways to do it than fabricating a lock from mystery just for Agatha Christie to figure out. If yeah, she it off. I, I, <laughs> I, I think like um, you, we. we 
when I was reading it, I almost got the feeling like uh, uh, something uh, almost straight away. Like as soon as he knocked on the door, I was like, he I think he's done it because I, I, I've seen this sort of setup before where he was the last person to see the um, the victim alive. Mm. Um, the room is locked, you know, and they make a big deal about how. So I, I, straight away, I was looking at it going, you know, I, I'm pretty sure he's done it. Um, so, you know, we just see it. But I, as I started reading it, I was like, so I, I was looking for different things in it then, because then so, suddenly every conversation Poirot was having with Sugden was interesting because he, he says quite earlier, early on, he said, I'd like to speak to people about the crime. And I was thinking back when I got to the end and thinking, well, he did speak to Sugden probably more than he spoke to anybody else. And he was always always asking Sugden his opinion. You know, it's like, how do you think this was done? You know, Sugden, you know, how did um, how, how do you see this happening? And, you know, and it, it's almost like um, he says, you know, even if people are lying to you, they're going to give away some sort of grains of truth. And I, I, as I was going through it, I, I was feeling like this is almost like uh, early Columbo. You know, we, we know who's done it straight up. We're just trying to find out high how it's been done. And the detective is almost toying with the uh, the chief suspect just to lead them on until they've, they've put together how it's all going to happen. So, mm. you know, uh, a couple of things that I thought um, I, I wanted to discuss with you. The first one was like all the the clues that are signposted like they always talk about the facial characteristics they've got this high bridge nose and i thought it was quite good in the adaptation like i, I noticed all the actors who were playing um the, the the children of simeon lee all had these massive noses with the, the high bridge on them i thought yeah they know, cast it well and they used yeah. a little bit of facial prosthetic really well um it, yeah it that, that attention the, detail was good the, the other thing then was the the the, 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 the sort of psychological aspect because like uh, this was the one thing that sort of didn't chime with me because this is coming back to this nature versus nurture debate and it's almost like uh, Inspector Sugden has got the same characteristics as Simeon Lee. He's waited a long time for his revenge because, like they use this quote, don't they? The mills of God grind slow, but grind exceedingly small. And, you know, that gets repeated a, a few times in it. And I, I just thought, I, I think I'm not sure it, people are just born with that trait. I'm, I'm not sure it's not something that, you know, they don't acquire. Yeah, mean Life experience. Yeah, memes. I, I agree with you. I think that tendency to vengeance, I can imagine it would be passed on a family, but I think it would be far more through memes and behaviours. If if he had lived with his father mm. and seen him in close quarters, I maybe would have gotten it, but not for someone who's raised out the house. So I agree and, with you. And, and, and Poirot's talking about um, how they have these different, they have, sorry, they have these mannerisms that are all identical. They throw their head back and they laugh, they stroke their shin when they're thinking. And Harry Lee does it and Simeon Lee did it. And Inspector Sugden does it, and you're like, mm, you know, is that is that right? You know, and even Stephen Farr, you know, spoilers, we find out that Stephen Farr is also one of Damien Lee's son, sons. So I, 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 that didn't quite chime in, and that comes back to when we're talking about it being dated as well. I'm not sure that aspect of it holds up quite as well. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think the sort of, you know, the yeah, the the entire concept of sort of familial genetics and inherited uh, traits and behaviours, I think, is weak. To mm. a modern reader, and maybe even at the time, to be frank, um, yeah, yeah, it's just—it's yet another reason why I just—I I don't have much more to say about this book because I just don't find it particularly well done. And I think it's the classic case where she posed herself a puzzle and solved it, and it's kind of like, bravo, yeah, you did technically do that, but yeah. it wasn't a good book. 
And I think it's fascinating that not the next book, but the one after this, again, she's going to pose herself a, a problem that is very technical and, in the, and then there were none. Mm. And she's going to solve it in a way that is not only technically brilliant, but the characters are phenomenal. The psychology is deep. The atmosphere is just so penetrating and disturbing. And there's a reason why that book is one of the best selling of all time of any author ever. Right. Um, mm. So this to me is kind of like a, it's a first essay. It's a kind of, it's a book that gets her on the path to a greater book. Yeah. And it's a bridge book between, it's kind of like if you, if you put appointment with death in this as kind of puzzlings out of a kind of psychology and mm. a kind of, a kind of logistics that then gets you ultimately to, and then there were none in the darkness of World War II, I think then the context is all. And it's kind of why I love doing this linear reread, because I think even in a weaker book like this, by reading it in its order and seeing layers and references back and forth, you get more out of it. Yeah, you're studying the evolution. Yeah. I've got a couple more questions for you. Go on then. Why did Sugden point out the key had been turned from the outside? Like he was I know. The first... what an idiot. Why would he give away his own bit of why, 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 why is he dropping clues? And the other thing Unless is... Unless it's well, professional it's... pride and he can't help it through vanity, but we don't get that impression through the books. It's just silly. I think it's yeah. because Agatha Christie has to get that observation to us. But she could have done it in another way, mm. um, like through Poirot, for instance. So, yeah, I yeah. think that's weak. Okay, and then the other thing is, what? Why do we think Thugden was out to try and frame the family? From maybe just resentment that they had lived a very rich life in yeah. this, inside the family, whereas he was outside. Yeah. So, like, th those were just a couple of loose ends that I had that I thought, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can put my own reading onto that, but I think the book would have benefited from a bit more examination. Yeah, of, because of it's that. really weird. He resents his dad, doesn't he? But we never yeah. get from Agatha that he resents the siblings, like the, yeah. the legitimate siblings, and like you say that's a level of characterization that she doesn't trouble us with. I wonder if she was already kind of semi-working out or working on, and then there were none. It's, it's kind of interesting that the kind of the halo of books around it are yeah. definitely weaker than it. And I wonder if a lot of her brain power was consciously working on that. You know? Yeah. I, I, and I made this point when we were talking about appointment with death as well. I got mm. the feeling that he was working on death in the Nile at the same time. She had, these things bubbling and she had a favorite one that she's obviously poured a lot more effort yes. into. Yes. And we see know. we also saw that with Orient Express. The books haloing that weren't as good. I think I think this is yeah. something you really get to feel you kind of deduce it or imply it from from the sort of the work output that you can tell they're yeah. the favorite child. Favorite children. Um yeah. a bit like me and them really. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay, but anyway, I'm glad right. I'm glad we got to talk about it together today because I think I have I've definitely gotten more from it and that sort of the subtlety of the female characters being better drawn and also as you say about Magdalene sort of there being something more in like reading how she's answering and how she's playing with us. That's definitely yeah. a new one that I get from your take on it. Um, I just I I I, I thought um, it, it had little bits. Um, that interested me, scenes that interested me. But I think why I didn't enjoy this as much as I said was the it, it was just more humorless, you know. And they actually there was a quote on the murder is easy one um, when they were talking about murder is easy, and I just thought it just applied to this one as well. Mm. It just you know, uh, it, it 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 the the guy said that um, it was the William Blunt from the Observer when he was talking about murder is easy. He said. The humour and humanity of its detail raise a question which only one person can give an answer. Agatha Christie has grown accustomed to working her embroidery on a background of black. Could she or could she not leave death and detection out and embroider as well on green? 
I believe she's one of the few detective novelists who could, if she would let herself try, just for fun, I believe it would be good fun for other people too. So I think this guy is the same as me. When you look at Death on the Nile, you read Death on the Nile. Like There's a rich tapestry of characters that are drawn there. And they have great backstories and interesting side hustles, you know, and it's just missing from this book. I wonder if there's two things going on here. I wonder if the lack of humor and the lack of lightness in this book is just the environment in which she was writing, you know, Britain on the edge of war. So maybe you just lose that lightness. That, and I wonder a, if, and I wonder if again, it's that taking herself to that very blackest and darkest of place that will come with, and then there were none. That yeah, somehow I, she I, always has to get rid of that Hastings and some of that PG Woodhousey silliness. You know, there's yeah, a lot of yeah. silliness and whimsy in early Agatha Christie, and mm-hmm. she somehow has to purge herself of that to get to the bleakness of then there were none. And unfortunately, that process of purging gives us some, some rather dull, kind of not very Poirot-ish yeah. Poirot novel. Um, the the necessary definitely. casting yeah. off of that lightness of touch. And, yeah, you know, she, she's, she, she's gradually shedding it until she can produce something as dark as then there were not, and then there were none. But, you know, it, it's taking a, a while to get there. You know, she's gradually, yeah. yeah. No, I, and I, and I, that, that's cool. a lovely place to end, actually, because what I would say to the listener who may or may not actually be reading along with us because it's a lot to read, if you haven't read any other Christie to this point and are just listening along at home, you will have heard us refer to And Then There Went On a lot in the, in the previous couple of episodes. It is hands down one of her best novels, if not the best. It's hands down one of the best novels written in the 20th century of mm. any genre. If you're going to read one novel, and listen to a podcast about it, and you've got about two to three weeks to, to do it, please pick up and then there were none and give it a go because it, it's really a work of art. And we'll say no more now, but I promise you that if there's one of these books you're going to read, have a read of that. And if you want another podcast on Agatha Christie and another take, then do check out all about Agatha. Um, okay. thank, you, thank you for joining, Pat. No, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you.